are listening to Adjective New Music's podcast, Lexical Tones. I'm your host, Rob McClure. Candid, altruistic, loving. Celebrated for her terrifying dynamic range, cleanliness of sound, as well as unique sensitivity and ability to sculpt her performance for the acoustics of a space, Elizabeth A. Baker is a dramatic performer with an honest, near-psychic connection to music, which resounds with audiences of all ages and musical backgrounds. As a creator, her understanding of sonic space from organic intuition and studies in music production pair with a unique eclectic voice, making for a spatial and auditory experience of music, eschewing the collection of traditional titles that describe single elements of her body of work. Elizabeth refers to herself as a new Renaissance artist that embraces a constant stream of change and rebirth in practice which expands into a variety of media, chiefly an exploration of how the sonic world can be manipulated to personify a variety of philosophies and principles, both tangible as well as intangible. Hey, how are you? I'm fine. How are you? <laughs> Let's start out with uh, with On the Other Side. Um, so I was reading a little bit about, the, um, about this work on your website, and you... You kind of described it as, or you posed a question, is love a deception of reality? Is that is that fair? Yeah. It's kind of funny that you're mentioning this piece and funny that I picked this piece and that this piece goes with this question because it kind of like happened like right at the end of the toy piano festival so um <laughs> that i had an unfortunate experience with exactly what this piece is written about so okay. uh, it's pretty my life is coming pretty full circle right now <laughs> <laughs> all right let's just dig in right at the top <laughs> so i guess can you talk about the meaning of this work in relation to the title on the one side of uh, the other side, the sort of challenge I gave myself with that piece was to write something that had absolutely no electronics at all and to prove to myself and others that I am capable of writing for traditional instrumentation. I mean, there's a toy piano, but traditional instrumentation <laughs> with traditional pretty viola lines and things like that. Um, because I think a lot of times I'm very misunderstood because I do all of the different things that make me a new Renaissance artist. So it was kind of the other side of Elizabeth. Um, and then... What I was about to say was, so when I was in New York, um, 2015, December, I was working with my duo partner on his recital at Juilliard, and I it was the first time I sort of had encountered um, some issues with practicing, shall we say? Uh, I just come off of a long, like month long tour, and the score that I'd been given that I was supposed to perform, uh, I there was no way that I was going to have time to rehearse a score and drive fifteen hours between venues for like a straight <laughs> month. Um, and so <laughs> I'd come home, I came back, and 
the composer basically didn't feel like I was fulfilling her vision enough. And so I'd come up to New York almost for no purpose whatsoever other than record my friend's recital because apparently she didn't want me to play on that. I understand that. I mean, I don't fully understand it, but that's okay. Um, (laughs) I just think that, (laughs) you know, I think that you should always, like, your vision for things should be malleable and it shouldn't always be bound to, like, what's in the score sometimes because then what's the point of having an actual performer perform it? You could just have a really nice sound library perform yeah, for that, you at that time it just becomes like that's what electronic music is for you know at that point exactly and so um and and i have no ill will for her in any case but it was probably the first time in my career where i was like i really felt like i was on the other side of like what am i doing with my life Um, and I had like, and and, I mean, anyone that tours can tell you that it is psychologically a very insane place to be. And, um, especially when you tour by yourself, which I've been doing for years and I know the psychological effects on it. And I've, uh, often led a lot of my friends to, there was a post in, uh, I want to say it was like the Guardian or one of the one of the larger uh, UK newspapers where they did a study on musicians that toured and it was probably the most insightful piece that Mm -hmm. I have ever read for my own sanity, but that I've been able to give to other people to kind of explain what it's like where you go on tour and you're basically working every day. You're kind of shown around like a little show pony when you go to schools and so you're constantly on you have no like break whatsoever you're sleeping on the roadside like I I tell them weird sketch things that happen to me and this is just the norm and then you come home and you're like feeding your cat and I don't have a cat but it's like that it's like you're it's like I did all these things I lived this weird life now I'm feeding my cat and it's like you never fully adjust back to it so I was like on the other side of touring and the other side of what I call practice shaming and so it was like the other side of a lot of things and I was just like the only way I could get through it was like listening to the Strokes album like First Impressions of Earth and they have that Mm -hmm. song on the other side and I was just like in the subway just playing that on repeat and that was like my zen to like get through the next few days of my life. And then there's most all of my pieces on some level have some sort of love attached to them because I don't know why that's a weird obsession of mine. Um, <laughs> it really makes it's absolutely kind of a no human sense because ex- I have no though. boyfriend to speak of, no husband or children. So it really makes absolutely no sense, but it is a thing. Um, <laughs> And, uh, so on the other side is like, what's really on that other side of life on the other side of my perception of things and particularly on the other side of love. Um, is it really that that person cares? Do they have alternate motives? Like there's just a lot of 
like what's on the other side and you never know i mean intuition kind of tells you sometimes some things but you never really know um and even if that person does say that they love you like you never really truly know like even the Mm -hmm. depth of that emotion that they have so let's get into the kind of the the more um because i thought this was a interesting um an interesting instrumental combination and there was a spot that really struck me um it was around the six minute mark and it has it was like repeated toy piano chords and viola pizzicato and i thought that those two instruments came together to create something really new like a really unidentifiable instrument and in, in a way it was almost kind of like a prepared piano yes it was, that's actually yeah it was every violist like worst nightmare is that part so really <laughs> it's because it's the pits it's pits and it's super fast um i've oh, had yeah. a like a cup like a second violist tried to play it recently and she was like i could not play it up to that tempo um and i'm really <laughs> lucky that my friend don Pufal, um who was the violist on it she's played my music for a number of years and i add pits like ridiculous amounts of pits in things all the time um, mm-hmm. because I just really like that sound and I really like the attack with the toy piano because it's all of a sudden you have this very beautiful lyrical part and then all of a sudden it's this weird texture like you're talking about like it makes its own instrument um, so to speak yeah. for a while. Because you've you've got the prepared piano like in the like very upper registers, and then the it it really combines in this weird way that is really really amazing. And um, I wanted to I wanted to ask you particularly about the prepared or sorry the uh, the toy piano because you've written pretty extensively for it. You have a book um, called Toyager, a toy piano method about prepared piano um like a method book for prepared piano so i have a couple questions about prepared piano one is what advice can you give to others who want to write for this instrument for prepared piano or toy piano did i was i saying prepared piano how many times did i say prepared piano (laughs) i'm every time i meant toy piano (laughs) um so writing for toy piano i pretty much always tell people that they should probably go buy a toy piano or borrow a toy piano from someone and play it and then write for it because I, and I'm very open about it. So, I mean, all the composers who've written for me, they, they know, um, it's not, it's not a big secret. The first thing I do when somebody gives me a toy piano piece that they've written for me is I take a red pen and I start circling <laughs> stuff. That's not possible. I'm like, not possible. Right. My instrument doesn't do that. Not possible. I can't do that. Like, like, and, and they're all like really things that people just don't think about. Like the anatomical limitations of the toy piano. I mean, each body is a little bit different, but if somebody gives me like seven minutes of tremolos on a concert grand, first of all, the action of the toy piano doesn't come back that fast that I can just sit there and do like octave tremolos with other things in there. It's just not happening. Um, and 
then the other part is that if you want the tremolos to move across the spatial region, whatever, um, and where those tremolos fall is also dependent upon where my knee is because I'm a tall person. Mm. So when I'm sitting on my little piano bench, you know, my knee is, is in my face essentially. And, um, you know, my arm can only move so far within that plane. So, I mean, it's just, that's the first thing. It's like, so for technical, practical reasons, one should always play a toy piano first before would you say that would you say that thinking about it just like a tiny piano is a mistake yeah that's a big mistake that's generally generally what happens is sometimes people write pieces for me and i'm like wow this is a really pretty piano piece that can never be played on the toy piano (laughs) Um, and i'm pretty good at spotting things like that these days um a lot of other things are like when people want me to play exceptionally soft or exceptionally loud. And I'm like, yeah, I mean, the instrument doesn't really have that great of a dynamic range. I can play it well, but I can't give you like, like triple P is not going to happen. Like that's just not, it's like, yeah. I, I can't, I can't give you that. <laughs> um, and also each piano is different. So, I currently have six toy pianos and each one has their, has its own different um, personality and certain notes that don't sound sometimes reliably when I want them to sound. So I hit the note and then nothing comes out and that's always fun in performance. Um, Yeah. It's it's always a new thing. Every, like each piece has a little something different. Each piece teaches you something different. How did you get to know the instrument? I knew about toy piano. Um, I I really was into John Cage. Uh, when I was in music school, like traditional music school, at Florida Southern College, I was not necessarily a loner. Completely, but I was the last Mohican, so to speak. I was the last classical guitar major that the school ever had. And so my hours were very different to my classmates. I wasn't in band. I only had to suffer through chorus for like two semesters. And then um, I was pretty much done. So when everyone else was doing things, uh, I was in my dorm room reading all the John Cage books and listening to everything John Cage I could get my hands on. (laughs) And so I found out about toy piano because I was listening to John Cage and obviously the suite for toy piano, which is sure now become like the fur Elise of toy piano. Um, (laughs) Anytime somebody's like, can you play? Do you hear it in department stores for toy piano? I'm like, no, uh, can you add an extra zero to that check? Cause I'm going to need that. Um, like, it's just, I love the piece, but I just feel like, you know, there are other pieces. We, we can play other things. It will be okay. Um, so I'd listen to John Cage and I mean, probably talking about like 2021 around that time. And it hadn't occurred to me that you could like go on Amazon and buy a toy piano because it seemed like such a long time ago instrument 
that I was like, there's no way you can just scrounge up a toy piano. And, and for whatever reason, I mean, I was on Amazon all the time buying the John Cage books because I was living in Lakeland and there's nowhere to buy books like, you know, on John Cage in Lakeland. And my right. school didn't have these things in the library because, I mean, for the most part, it was a pretty conservative music school. So I had to go buy all these books off of Amazon. I have... I can't tell you why my brain didn't say to me like one time, like maybe you go search toy piano on Amazon. It never <laughs> occurred to me as a thing. So then years later, um, my friend and duo partner, Robert flights, he came down here and, or down to Florida and played a piece on toy piano with melodica and tambourine foot pedal uh, for my organization, the New Music Conflagration. And then I was like, that's cool. And so I ended up buying my own toy piano because around that same time, I was doing a lot of um, experimental improvisation and people were asking me about touring with them for, in, for that improvisation stuff. And I mean, a lot of experimental improvisations happen in places that don't have a concert grand just lying around. So I was like, well, what's small and portable a toy piano? And so because they didn't want anything that was that had to be amplified, uh, which mm-hmm. in hindsight, the uh, toy piano was not a good choice because <laughs> most experimental improv improvise most experimental people who do improv um are loud very very loud (laughs) yeah there was actually a concert that i played with a group where there were there's trumpet trombone like two or three saxophones two drummers oh my god how are how are you there were four saxophones somebody doing like improvisational extended vocal techniques that were mostly like screaming and garbled things. And it was so loud. They were all men, by the way, this is an important part. Um, Cause in experimental music, there's like no women and there's no black women except for me and Pamela Z. I don't want to meet her one day. <laughs> Anyways. Um, they were like, they were like, yeah, let's do sound check right now. This first part's going to be awesome. And it was just like loud. It was just loud, loud. And I was sitting at the piano and the piano was facing the wall because there were so many people on the stage. They couldn't flip the piano around. Oh, there was oh, also upright yeah. bass. So the upright bass player that I now have a toy piano upright bass duo with, he, he was playing in this group with me. And I had to have a mirror, but... Then the conductor kept stepping out of frame of the mirror. So I kept having to go like, Tom, Tom, when do I play? Tom, Tom. And so <laughs> it was so loud, though. I was like, I couldn't even hear my instrument. So I literally said during sound check, I was like, I can't hear my instrument. So I'm only going to play when I'm told to play. That's it. <laughs> so in hindsight, the toy piano was a really bad choice for that sort of situation. Um, the tour didn't like pan out because of a number of reasons um but i ended up with a toy piano and then i had a master plan to get sponsored by the toy piano company shun hut because i realized they were in florida and 
I had told my duo partner, I was like, Robert, we're going to, because we were going to do a toy piano and toy piano duo with electronics. And I was like, Robert, we're going to get sponsored by the toy piano company in like three months or four months, like four months. I'm getting four months. And he was like, no way. What's your plan? I'm like, I'm going to post really weird stuff on Instagram with the toy piano. I want to make contact <laughs> mics. I'm going to attach them to the toy piano. I'm going to run them through pedals. It's all going to be weird stuff. And they're going to be like, this is awesome. And they're going to freak out. And then that's exactly what they did. And at the three month mark, exactly. I got an email from the owner and the artist rep asking if I would like to officially be a Shunhut artist. And so my evil master That's awesome. worked. So if you can be weird too and get sponsorships, that's what I learned. <laughs> that's great. I love that. So now we're going to listen to On the Other Side, and this is you on Toy Piano and Don Pufal on Viola. And this is from your album, This Is Not a this is not a piano album, noun, an album in which a keyboard connected to hammer striking strings with 88 distinct pitches is never played.
So you just came off the Toy Piano Festival. How many how many years have you done the Toy Piano Festival? This is the second year. Okay. It feels like the 13th. <laughs> I imagine it's quite a bit of work. Uh, it is, um, especially because there's only three people involved in doing all the work. With kind of right. me at the helm of all of that. So, um, how many how many events do you have? What are are they all concerts? Are you do like what what it all what all does the Toy Piano Festival entail? Well, the Toy Piano Festival it morphs every year. Um, this past year, we decided to work with local like K through twelve students uh, in the county, and we had composers write pieces for the kids. And then the kids learned the pieces. And then um, from there, I think, uh, we did two concerts with the kids. And then we had lectures. We had performance again. We did some concerts. Um, and so that was, that was mostly it for this year. Uh, last year... I feel like we did lecture. We did not do lectures last year. We just did um, concerts, and we also went to one of the schools in the county and 
played for the kids at the school and had them ask questions and kind of talk to them about improvisation. So, yeah, I mean, it really changes every year. So every year we try to come up with a theme. So the first year we didn't really have a theme, but it just sort of turned into toy piano solos. And then this year the idea was toy piano in collaboration. But again, most people submitted toy piano solos because I find that a lot of people don't know how to read directions <laughs> yeah yeah that's uh that's definitely true i've i mean i've been judging for several different competitions like i've we've had our own competitions at this school and yeah people cannot read at all yeah um if i had a dollar for every time somebody submitted a full piano piece for toy piano i'd be so rich i also made a spoof video which only a few people have actually seen because every year i'm like i feel like i just have to explain what a toy piano is because people just keep sending me all these things and because i'm the adjudication committee of one that has to filter things before i send them to robert uh (laughs) I was just like, I can't do this anymore. And it was a great video, which I took off the interwebs because I thought that I should probably be serious for, I don't know, other reasons. But the first line was like, the first thing to know about a toy piano is that a toy piano is not a piano. It is, in fact, a toy piano. And I had was it was in a high school science lab, like explaining like it was science. And then I would like That's pop great. up from underneath the, the desk in different ways each time, like, hello. But didn't see you there. I was looking at molecules on this microscope. <laughs> <laughs> Why did you take that down? That seems so awesome. It's just too sarcastic and not enough Uh, people should not know how like super sarcastic I am about things (laughs) so let's talk about EB plus EB equals argument invalid with the upper inflection of the question mark is that the way you say it yeah (laughs) actually you don't say it it's just a piece and you don't say it (laughs) oh it's like Tristan Parrish's piece that's like QS, 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 RR, QS, QS, something like that. Like it's all these letters. And I actually asked him, I was like, so uh, how do you pronounce that piece? And he's like, you don't. I was like, yes, because I've been calling it the unpronounceable piece. And he was like, you are exactly right. I'm like, is that yes? <laughs> so that's kind of like my unpronounceable piece. Got it. Um, so the sounds we hear at the beginning of the work, are those are those in the electronics, the percussion sounds? Nope. No, those are live. That's what I thought. Okay. Everything is live and then just being processed in real time. So it's finger symbols, clave, and harmonium. And I think maybe on that recording I had a brass like mallet. But also don't quote me on that because that piece was definitely recorded in the middle of a tour. So Okay. And so you have, it's for uh, Indian harmonium and then these other auxiliary percussion instruments. 
And can you talk about the juxtaposition? Uh, oh wow, I'm sorry. I really can't talk this morning. <laughs> um, can you talk about the juxtapositions between the unpitched sounds and the Indian harmonium? I mean, there's there's kind of a conflict between those two sonic identities. Well, no, because the Indian harmonium actually does add some unpitched sounds. Like I start flicking the bellows. Um, uh-huh. I definitely run the mallet and then one of the clove up against the uh, jolly of the harmonium. So it's because I wanted to do a lot of quote unquote extended techniques for harmonium. Um, and <laughs> and then the harmonium, because I hadn't serviced it and it's a finicky instrument, it started creaking. So, I mean, that's sort of an unpitched thing that I started messing with in the recording. Cause the whole piece is sort of like a structured improvisation. Um, and I just, I just really liked all the textures that I could get out of those. And then the textures that I could get out of the harmonium as being played like a regular harmonium. The, on the recording. So you said this was done. The recording was done during a tour on the recording. There's kind of background sound. So that is the background sound. Yeah. Like in the space. So, okay. yeah, that was just the background sound of the space. But pretty much every time I perform this piece, uh, with rare exception, it's never done in a space that's super quiet. And uh-huh. it is this very delicate piece, especially with the unpitched sounds and the harmonium, of course, then, you know, once you start really playing the instrument as it's supposed to be played, um, you then start getting a wash over those atmospheric sounds. Mm-hmm. Uh, and if I were to delve deeper into the piece and why I like those sort of like people randomly talking in the background. I have a couple of different like live recordings of it and there's always a very interesting juxtaposition of like these very mundane sounds in the background of people and then these sounds which almost exist on another plane for me and every time I play that piece it's very meditative for me um and then all of a sudden I come back to the world at the very end and it's like oh and it's it's I love that recording aspect of it like every time it's been recorded you do hear those background sounds and you're kind of like is that part of the piece is that not part of the piece and you're not quite sure but I kind of always consider it to be part of the piece that's just sort of like a happy John Cage chance thing yeah going on mm-hmm. yeah and there was a part you know I wish there were I wish there was a little bit more of the lower register of the harmonium because when it comes at the when it comes in at the end it feels so good <laughs> but then again I, I I this this is something I always wrestle with with my with other pieces and with my own pieces it's like well does it feel good because there's not a lot of it you know like if there was more would it would it lose that special quality but when it does come in at the end, that's a very striking effect. The the low uh, register of the harmonium with the high electronics 
feels nice. Thank you. Um, again, it was it was a structured improvisation, and this was this was a piece that I really. Every tour, I sort of come up with a piece, like I sort of write a piece on tour is what happens. I just write a piece mm-hmm. on tour. Um, and it's always a piece that is tied back to something or someone at home. So the year before that, I wrote the piece um, Meditation for Water, Wind, and Metal. And that was really like a portrait of my friend, Sean Hamilton, who's an amazing percussionist. Right now, actually, he's on tour um himself and he does a lot of stuff with electronics and percussion but primarily right now his tours uh with drum set and so uh that piece it was very grounding for me because again I tour by myself like for a month or sometimes more at a time um like I come home only to change gear and get on a different type of transportation within 24 hours. Um, right. And so it's nice to set, to have these hallmarks of home when I'm performing because, I mean, with Sean, it's a whole different thing because we definitely do talk when both of us are on tour. Uh, but most of my other friends or family, I, I'm not talking to them when I'm on tour. Tour is time for me to work, time for me to be away from everyone and all their whatever things are going on. And so I create these modes of having conversations with people that I really want to have conversations with, uh, but I can't because of physical proximity. So this was, uh, this time it was sort of a conversation with my friend Eric. And at the time there was like a lot of turmoil going on with that so each iteration of the piece some were darker than others some had a little bit more light and then became dark uh and and they were just different they were just very different pieces each time but with the same parameters like these are the like the vocabulary of sounds that I'm going to use and it evolved from there so now we're going to listen to this and this um you said it was uh, recorded in Nashville on your tour in October 2016. Yep. And um this is you on Indian Harmonium with Live Electronics. EB plus EB equals argument invalid.
So you mentioned that this piece was uh, a structured improvisation. And improvisation features really heavily in your work, right? Yes. At present, yes. <laughs> at present, it, it not not always has it f- featured heavily? Um, not always. And also, like, moving into the future, not always. Um, I'm always okay. in a state of of constant change, but... Lately, there's been a lot of improvisation just because there has. It's just been a, a period mm-hmm. of, I mean, discovery, especially like with the toy piano, I never wanted to be sort of fixed into a box. So I did allow myself to have a lot more space for improvisation, especially within the last two years, because I was working with the toy piano and I was working with some other things, um, the Wii balance board and the Wii uh, remote using those uh, for dance purposes and the whole concept of being a dancer and a musician and incorporating intention from both from the dance side into the music side and that informing movement and that had to lend itself in many ways to improvisation because mm-hmm. all of a sudden I'm merging two worlds and it's like there's choreography, but you don't want the choreography to be so stringent that you can't do the music part and you don't want the music part to be so stringent that you can't do the movement part. But I've now kind of come to a happy medium where it's like, okay, well, we've now have a handle on these things and what can we really do and how far can we push things And now that I'm starting to work with other dancer friends um, who want to perform with me while we can do improv, I am moving to sort of saying, like, let's do something that's improv, but also has has room for improv, but has more room for structured dance and music. And this is all kind of going into, you know, the the two pieces we've heard so far are you playing toy piano and then you playing Indian harmonium. And the last piece we're going to hear is you playing theremin and you're also dancing and you're playing piano. Do you play any other instruments? I went to school for classical guitar performance. Okay. <laughs> Obviously. Um, and then I definitely learn to play drums because all my friends are percussionists so they're the best type of friends yeah if you hang around them enough they're you're gonna pick up something uh so i have pretty decent percussion chops and i play guitar not publicly but it does appear on uh some of my albums and people are always like who's playing guitar i'm like well that would be me Using that thing <laughs> that I went to school for for so many years. So I imagine that all of this goes into why, or is at least part of the reason you have decided to call yourself a new Renaissance artist, as opposed to probably a list of I do this and this and this and this and this and this. So what what is the what does the term new Renaissance artist mean to you? Um. I actually ended up writing a whole post on this so uh, people could kind of understand what I was kind of going for. I had a 
I kind of have to tell the story for it to make sense because most people are like, well, you're basically just a performer composer. So and I'm like, no, I actually went to production school. I record, mix and master almost all of my music with rare exception. Um, I've been operating Pro Tools for over 10 years, like the better part of a decade. And I write. I also paint, used to do photography pretty extensively. Uh, but I had an experience this past summer where I was working on a film with a, a dancer friend of mine, and she introduced me to someone as the composer of the film. And I had a very physical, violent inward reaction where I felt claustrophobic like immediately I felt claustrophobic and I realized immediately it was it was the term composer and everything that went with with what a composer is and particularly what a composer is today I don't identify in any way (laughs) and this is going to sound very very odd I don't identify in any way with composers today and and that sounds like it's not a like a condescending term not putting myself on a different platform as everyone else not saying that I don't know how to achieve those sounds that are very much in the vernacular of modern concert music but I realized that I've always lived outside of the realm of what I was supposed to be doing um, because inherently I am an African-American woman and I don't fit in the box. And I've never really had too much of a problem with the fact that I don't fit in the box because I just sort of focus on my own path and move on. But composer felt like I'm expected to write in a specific way and I have these limitations on what I can do as an artist and there's inherently just expectations and I hate when expectations are put in the way. There's an expectation the moment people say, well, there's an expectation of of pianists and I'm like, yeah, well, when you walk on stage as a pianist and you're going to do a concert, people are like, oh, well, you're going to play Chopin or you're going to play Beethoven or you're going to play Mozart. But for me, as an African-American woman, I step on the stage and people think I'm going to play some sort of jazz or hip hop or R&B. And I'm not discounting those things. But at the same time, I'm not allowing myself to be boxed into that expectation So I labored for months on what was I going to call myself. And I thought of like, I mean, the obvious term would be, oh, you're, you're an interdisciplinary artist or you're a digital media artist or those are just some of the terms that people would say. And those don't really capture what I do because... I'm not just an artist. I still am an engineer. I have friends that ask me all the time to like 
engineer their sessions for them to like mix or master things for them to be a producer on something because I mean that's why I went to school so I would have that Mm -hmm. that skill set that most classical quote-unquote musicians don't have and to be able to speak the language of both sides of the glass and so I thought about the renaissance and people in the renaissance were expected to do everything like you were expected to be a scientist and an artist and a poet and and I realized that I really am all those things mixed up I really get into like neuroscience and all sorts of weird things that you know most people don't because they're they have friends and they go to the bar but I just (laughs) stay at home I I don't I don't think that's it you know (laughs) go on google yeah so I realized that, you know, I really sort of embody that whole renaissance feeling. And then I thought, well, I don't want to be called a renaissance artist because people are going to think of like turkey mutton and like dirty (laughs) skirts and weird stuff and Big, totally big hats with long feathers. Long feathers, and also, and 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 literally forget that there was a whole Harlem Renaissance because Black History only happens in February. So right. the Harlem Renaissance only happens in February. So nobody, other than that, everyone's gonna look at this term and think that I'm just like I'm I'm literally shaking a tambourine in a dust bowl, like in some weird. Like While a fife is playing. Exactly. And so I was like, okay, well, I'm not going to be a Renaissance artist. I'm going to be a new Renaissance artist. And new because it really reinforces the whole concept of Renaissance from the other side, which means rebirth. And there's a quote one of my mentors said that always has sort of been true throughout my entire life. Um, so my mentor and piano teacher, Jeff Donovic, he once said, most people change their molecules every seven years. Elizabeth changes her molecules every seven months. And it's really true. <laughs> um, I progress through different things way faster <laughs> than most of my friends Um, even the ones that are composers, like they sort of get stuck in a style and they're that that's their style. And I'm like already moved on to something like new, but it's still my style, but it's just, I've moved on to like trying new things and pushing myself out of my comfort zone. Um, and I mean, you can just look at sort of the variety of projects that I take on. It's, I mean, it's never it's never the same. It's always working in different things. And so new and Renaissance are kind of the only words that I could find that really fit that mold. You know, that's really interesting what you just said about, you know, uh, changing, like going off in different directions so often. And I wonder, because this is something that 
you know, you look you look at some some artists or composers from from the past and is like, yes, they have a style that they were in for a long time and then they changed or they had a style they were in for their entire life. Like, for instance, and uh, like, for instance, Steve Reich. He's had I this felt like style you were say that. since 1980, let's just say. Don't okay. tell him that because he says that it changed that one time he went to India. So, <laughs> yeah, yeah, I'm sure it did. Um, <laughs> but but my my point is, it's like I really I, I look at artists who are constantly going in new directions. And my former my former teacher is one of these is one of these people who he's always doing. He's never going to repeat himself. He's always doing something new. And I'm trying to figure out like what is it about the person that allows that to happen because and i this just struck me and maybe it's true maybe it's not but i wonder if the what allows you to do that is not having a fear of success oh i just have no fears at all um about anything having to do with my career success or failure or I I don't I I I just do my thing and that's kind of how it is and it it goes back to I mean I, I joke about the whole I don't go out because I don't really have friends so I just don't go out I, I joke about that but I mean I really work to avoid any part of humanity <laughs> it's it's horrible and and awesome at the same time um however i will say that i have had a love life very close to beethoven's in that it has just been a myriad of rejection after rejection and so the best way for me to deal with that is for me to just work all the time so when you work all the time (laughs) you're gonna inherently get bored with one style and you're going to want to explore new things and and that's what happens at least for me because I'm always working uh I think that if I had like a regular professor job where I wasn't sitting in my my creative work so much that I might stay in certain styles longer but yeah. because I'm constant, I'm not, I don't have that. I specifically decided not to go the route of going and getting a master's degree and then getting a job at like a university. I, I definitely like had some thought provoking soul searching moments where I really did consider like, would I be happy in that? And for me, I would not. So I, go about things a little bit differently and again it's just I work all the time and then when I do have like one of those bad things that happens like Beethoven I work more (laughs) so Mm -hmm. because of that I'm always sitting in my stuff I'm always reevaluating my stuff and uh I say sometimes like with the recording process, it's like you're recording something and you're like, 
my gosh, this is awesome. This is awesome. And then you like start mixing it and you're like, this is disgusting and horrible. And why did I think this was great? And then by the end of it, you're like, oh, that's pretty okay. And then you sort of shelve it for a while. And then a few years later, you come back to it and you're like, wow, that didn't suck as much as I thought it did. And, uh, <laughs> but that's kind of how I view all of my work. It's like, wow, this is awesome. This is great. Uh, that didn't suck so bad. <laughs> And <laughs> I love that process. Could you write a paper about that process? <laughs> it just, I mean, it happens, that... it, it happens every time. And I mean, it's actually yeah. kind of funny because my mom asked me uh, recently, I had a film premiere and it was received like really well. Everyone, like people were crying over the score. It was probably the best that you could expect for uh the movie that it was um attached to and she asked me and she said were you excited or like super happy with your work and I said to her I mean granted there was like a whole thing with a guy who showed up and I kind of put a damper on things ruining all the things don't don't be human that's what i learned don't be human it's not it's not good um so but basically i told her no i was like i did my job and that was kind of it and i have this this very sort like a lot of people get very caught up in their egos and caught up in like this is my piece and and it's just this is my piece and this is the way it should be and I am like really like attached to it and I have this very strange thing of like I have created this piece I have released it into the universe and like that's that's it and I did mm-hmm. my job and my job and my purpose on this earth is to create art and I have made the art and it is now there and people may or may not be affected by it, but that's, it's now has its own life to live. And because I have that like look outlook on things, I sort of am able to move from project to project, like, okay, that piece is done. And like, now we're on to the next thing. And I don't have these very like passionate, like hatred or like super highs and lows that I think that a lot of people get with like, Oh my gosh, I had a premiere of my piece. And, and it's this big high. And then when they don't have a premiere or they don't have a commission for a long time, they have like a low and they get really depressed. And this is a very big artist thing. And I, and the way that I've learned to navigate that, and it comes probably from touring and just sitting in my studio by myself for years and years. Um, But I realized that if you sort of look at everything on even keel and and don't put so much stock into things, and and I'll go back again to Jeff Donovic, my teacher, he told me they they did a big concert at the school, uh, which had never been done before, never been done, it's never been done ever since of works that I wrote for piano and the whole piano department was involved in it and alumni students came in and played and and so it was a big to do and on the eve of that performance Jeff sort of said to me 
He said, this is one big night, but you're going to have many big nights in your career. And you can't put all your stock into one because you won't have the momentum to propel you to the next one. So Mm -hmm. I take that really to heart and... And I, and I say this because it's, it's also the season of everyone sort of being down because like grad school applications and perce- professorship applications and like this is just the time when everyone's just sort of like in a lull. And I kind of have to remind everyone it's like this season that you're in right now is not your entire life. And if you put all the stock in all the good things or all the stock in all the bad things, because artists live in extremes, you're never going to be able to navigate all the way through life. It's okay to have those feelings of happiness and like sadness, but you can't allow the dips to be so big that you're like, if you fall into the abyss, like you don't have a way to get out. Yeah, yeah, I mean, absolutely. Well, I don't I don't think there's going to be a easy transition here, so uh let's just start talking. Let's move on to your last piece, uh Byzantine Space Lullaby. This is another structured improvisation and uh like I mentioned earlier, for this one you're playing theremin. Yep. Um Whenever, whenever I teach an electronic music class and we go over the um, the beginnings of electronic music, you know the early instruments, um, I always cover the theremin and I always impress upon the students how insanely difficult the theremin is to play. So, how did you get how? how? So end of question. <laughs> I wanted a theremin, and I got it. And I also played cello, so that whole like situation of like pitch understanding, like spatially, was kind of already in my body. And then since I was a dancer, I was trained as a dancer. I was at that time I wasn't dancing, but I was trained as a dancer. I have an acute awareness of my body much more mm-hmm. than a lot of other people. So for me, the theremin is not that challenging of an instrument to play and it's sort of something I keep in in the back pocket because every now and then it'll come up that like a local band wants me to record a theremin track for something and I'll get some extra money for doing mm-hmm. not much <laughs> like right because they're not asking for like a super crazy yeah. like theremin part they're like can you just play in tune and I'm like sure I got gotcha. you done um hand over check please like and it's it's like what i like to call or my dad would call maximum utilization of available resources Uh, i have a theremin they have money i'm willing to play it um so i don't know i i love the sound of the theremin i obviously run the theremin through effects pedals um it isn't a difficult instrument to play it does take practice but it's very rewarding instrument to play. And I love, I love the fact that it's not bound by, uh, it's not bound by traditional Western equal temperament. You can play Mm -hmm. it with anything 
it is really a universal instrument. I always make the joke because we do um, instrument petting zoos for my nonprofit that it's always it's the most sanitary instrument of all time. And so I mean, you're you're not getting the stomach flu playing that after someone else. Just... That's good. So about this piece, though, you're saying and and you know the other pieces too. When you say structured improvisation. What kinds of things are on the page for these pieces? Because why the 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 first piece of yours that I actually became a uh, um, that I actually knew about was your piece three uh, three compositions for piano and electronics, and we did uh, we did the second movement here on one of our new music concerts, and I got I really have to say the audience was really mesmerized by your piece it was it was great um it was a chill concert um in general but uh i really feel like all the pieces worked really well together and your and uh your piece was one of the highlights of of that concert it was great but for that piece there's not a ton on the page you know you're you give the pitches but you basically tell the um performer to you know progress at your own pace more or less you know and the third movement of that piece there's even less on the page i mean it's just a it's just a chord right and just say improvise yep so in this in this piece which you know has two people in it what are your what what like what is on the page or if it's not on the page, what is the conversation before this piece? The conversation was let's take Byzantine music and I'll play theremin underneath it. <laughs> that was the conversation. I almost did a spit take. I was taking water there. <laughs> so my friend uh, who is the clarinet player on that piece um, if people can't tell by her name, I'll actually say it. So her name is Fofi Panagiotoros, if we say it in American vernacular. But her actual real name is Fotini Panagiotoros, and she is Greek. Um, her her uncle is a cantor in the Greek Orthodox Church. So like these Byzantine chants are common. To both of our ears because I get invited to Greek Easter, which is awesome because they roast all the lamb and there's all the pasticcio. There's like Greek salad. There's just it's just a giant feast and you eat and you eat and you eat some more and then you eat and then you go to sleep and then you eat some more and it's just magical and it's wonderful. And every year I'm like when Fofi's like, oh, Greek Easter is this year or this day this year, because it's not on the same Easter. It follows the Orthodox calendar. Right. I'm like, oh, marking it off on my calendar. Yes. Because <laughs> I know I'm going to eat all the food all the time. Yes. I'm very food motivated. So it's like. <laughs> <laughs> Got it. Great. Well, let's listen to this piece.
the last question um, I have for you, the the big question that I ask uh, everyone is, how did you come to music? And it seems like throughout our conversation, it's not just music, but I, I do want to talk specifically about music, is that how did you come to music as something that you wanted to pursue for your life? My mom is British. And Europeans tend to like to introduce their children to the arts at a very early age. So I went and I saw Peter and the Wolf. And that was my jam at like age three slash four. We had like, we, we, we went through about four cassette tapes of it because I wore it out so much. Yeah. And I looked up and I saw the guy, I was like, Mom, I want to be the guy with the stick. She was like, okay, I guess we'll put you in piano. (laughs) And that's pretty much how that happened. (laughs) And then I had a crazy Russian teacher and I was improvising. Like I was writing my own compositions pretty much as soon as I figured out what notes were and figured out that I could write them on a page. But then I had a crazy Russian teacher who would like yell at me and hit my hands and say, no, you must not, you must play only what's on the page. And I was like, that's boring. I don't want to be a part of this. So I took piano lessons and then at some point I quit piano lessons, but mostly because I was still able to practice at home. I was still able to write my own things Um, and then I was doing gymnastics and ballet and then feel like, and then we discovered I was good at track and I was doing track and ballet at the same time. And then music came back in because I started playing guitar and then at 18, they were like, so you can either be a modern dancer you can go to pre-law school. You can go on the track for the Olympics because I had gotten a bid from LSU when I was like in my sophomore year of high school um, to be a sprinter. And then, or you can do music. And pretty much everyone was not supportive of the whole you can do music thing. But I was like, eh, hmm. I'll figure it out. And <laughs> then I went to school for music. And then I was unhappy in school for music. So then I wasn't at that. And I went to commercial music school. <laughs> and then I got to the point where I was touring so much that I... It made no sense for me to be in school because it doesn't matter what school you go to. No school's attendance policy is a fan of you touring. So then I was yeah. not at music school and I've been working and touring ever since. Awesome. We should, uh, where can people find you online? Your website is? ElizabethABaker.com Bam. Twitter? eBakerMusic. I don't really Twitter. I don't really understand how Twitter works. I just push put. I just push Instagram pictures towards Twitter. I don't. I don't really understand the whole Twitter thing. (laughs) 
and then um do you have a do you have a facebook uh like artist page or something i feel like it's ebaker music but mostly go to your website and then from your website you can go to your soundcloud yep awesome thank you so much elizabeth for doing this no problem Thanks for listening. As always, if you want to find out more about adjective new music or lexical tones, please go to our website, www.adjectivenewmusic.com.